Welcome to Fintech Daydreaming, the podcast that dives into the world of banking technologies and the ever-changing landscape of fintech companies. We bring you real-life examples from global and local thought leaders, as well as experts working within the financial industry, and seek out the best stories from the front lines of financial services innovation, where dreams of industry pioneers meet reality. Hosted by Paul Krogdahl and Ville Sontu, this is Fintech Daydreaming. Hey guys, how are we doing? I'm actually wondering, are we as humans, as people, are we stupid or, or maybe irresponsible or, or just maybe short-sighted? I mean, we are drawing on natural reserves and not paying back at all. And how long do we really think this is going to last for? How long do we really think that this small planet that we are living on is going to be able to sustain our ambitions and our greediness in the use of all of these natural resources. I, I do not believe that we are gonna be able to maintain this. And I am fearful of the future that we're leaving for my children, and even more fearful for the future that we're leaving for my grandchildren. And I think that this goes across the board, both as us as individuals, as well as corporations. And the banking industry is no different. The banking industry is a heavily focused IT industry. And we get then into discussions around responsible computing, uh, et cetera. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I think it's a really important subject for us to cover. And today we're going to take that challenge. I'm Paul Krogdahl, and this is FinTech Daydreaming. And I don't take this journey on my own. I have my wingman, my co-host, my partner in crime, Villa Sointer, with me. And not only is he a tech nerd, a fantastic Finn, but he's a purveyor of very, very, very good, but bad listener jokes. So I'm wondering, Villa, how are things with you today? And please share with us a good joke. Oh yeah, things are, things are actually pretty good, pretty good. And what a passionate start you got there, Paul. Uh, I think you got the audience quite, uh, quite excited now about the topic of today, which is gonna be actually very interesting, but I, I have to say. But I am actually fearful for one thing, and that is that the world will not be the same once I actually tell this joke. This is a pretty complicated one, but uh, I think we're going to have to go for it anyway. Go for it. Come on. So did you hear that Nintendo's blockchain development team uh, ran into a bit of a problem, an internal dispute uh, when they were developing their latest Super Mario game? Mm, no, no. Share with us, yeah. Villa. Yeah, Super Mario got upset because he thought that they were using non-fungi tokens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I actually think Sorry that's the that. best one we've had to date. That, one, <laughs> that one's good. That one's good. But actually coming back to fungi and, and the Planet Villa, I mean, what do you think the future of the banking industry is going to look like considering the environmental impact that we're seeing with you know, the large scale of computing, we talk about Bitcoin and the use of electricity. What do you think? Well, I think I've said it before a couple of times, but I think the banks, they represent, they're like the operating system of, of the existing regulatory uh, kind of scheme that's in place in any kind of given uh, jurisdiction. So they go by the kind of laws and regulations and to a certain extent, the values of the societies where they, where they kind of do their business. And I think this 
environmental question is not no different. I think uh, banks have the opportunity to enforce many of the kind of green values and green thinking in terms of uh, designing around these principles that incentivize certain types of behavior, because uh, you can actually build incentives quite nicely uh, when, you, when you're talking about embedding money uh, into this into this uh, into these value chains. So yeah, I think uh, the banks, uh, as well as being the operating system for the for the regulation, they can also be the enabler uh, of, of, kind of better environmental values by building proper incentives into the right products. But I'm wondering whether that really is the truth. I mean, banks are driven by profit. They are measured on quarterly basis. And we all know that there's always a conflict of interest between doing what's good in the long term and doing what is driving value for us or the, the banks in the short term. This, this is a fundamental point of discussion. We've got with us today, Mark Stevens. Um, I, I listened to him do a presentation a couple of weeks ago and he, he absolutely blew my mind. I am so excited to have him here with us today. I, I had a really long, Mark, I had a long introduction about, about you, but I figure it's actually better to have you do it yourself. Why, why don't huh. you tell the world who is Mark Stevens and how did you get that fantastic title? of being a reluctant futurist? Well, the first thing to do is get, is say my name is Mark Stevenson. So it's Ooh. not- um, Mark Stevenson, uh, I apologize. That's, okay. that's all right. Uh, that's okay. Um, I've been called worse. Um, and I got the job title futurist, which I don't like, but because I wrote a couple of books um, with the word future somewhere on the cover and people started calling me a futurist. Um, I don't like being called a futurist for all sorts of reasons. Um, uh, and I'll list a few now. One is that there are no qualifications for being a futurist for a start. So there are degrees and things like future studies, but you don't have to have those to claim you're a futurist. Mm -hmm. um, futurism is generally populated, not there are notable exceptions, but it's generally populated by what I would call techno-utopian nerds who are convinced that technology will solve all of our problems. Yeah. And actually the problems we face are the ones we've always faced about ethics and morals and governance and how do we get on with each other on the planet. And those are not necessarily problems solved by technology. Yeah. And technology can help, but you know, as you've hinted at in your introduction, actually these are kind of governance and, and ethical issues and, 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 and moral questions. Um, and many futurists I think don't really have <laughs> much of a grounding in that kind of <laughs> sphere. Um, they certainly don't understand history, so they don't understand how we got to the, the, the problems we've got to many of them. So, you know, unless you have an understanding of the historical roots of inequality, the failures of the markets to price risk properly, all that kind of stuff, you know, how are you going to solve it? Yeah. Um, it's also associated with prediction. Um, all our predictions are wrong because all of us are too prejudiced. Um, I like to say, if you want to find the nearest prejudiced person, look in the mirror. So all of us are victims of the time we grew up, where we grew up, the politics that was around, the art that was around, the technology that was around, and it colours our thinking. Yeah. In fact, Napoleon Bonaparte said, tell me what the world was like when my enemy was 20 and I know how to destroy them. Um, so we tend to predict things that we find emotionally or financially convenient. Um, and in fact, Professor Philip Tetlock did an analysis of 38,000 predictions made by futurists and industry analysts and concluded they were no better than random chance because of this. Um, and the, the third reason I don't really like, there's another reason I don't like predictions is they're quite passive. So you can sp spend a fortune with futurist firms or analyst firms like, you know, Gartner or whoever, who will, you know, try to tell you what your market will be like in 10 or 15 years time. They'll be wrong, as we amply demonstrated. But also it's very passive, just as we just have to prepare for this, this upcoming thing. 
Um, and my brand of futurism, if I have one, is that I am more interested in getting my clients to understand the questions that the future is asking us and then saying, how are you going to answer those questions well in the service of making the future more equitable, more sustainable, more humane or more just? Because if you're not doing that, it's pretty pointless. So, you know, as, as Abraham Lincoln famously said, the best way to predict the future is to go and create it. So I'm much more of that kind of active view of thinking. And, and therefore, that you know, futurism or futurist is the nearest job title because I think about the future a lot. So I'm, I am well versed in technology and I do help my clients think big strategic thoughts about the future. But I put reluctant on the front because, um, you know, I didn't want to get associated with that other shower of techno nerds who get everything wrong and promise the earth and end up helping to destroy it. <laughs> I, I suppose so, uh, there's sort of there's the image of everybody staring into a crystal ball right yeah yeah uh, trying to predict what that future is going to look like and but what's that that phrase that that's used so often we learn from history that we learn nothing from history yeah yeah right. those those who uh, don't study history are doomed to repeat it and those yeah. who do study history are doomed to watch other people repeat it <laughs> <laughs> But, but I suppose part of it is, is also, like you said, I think, driven by biases. We are almost formed in, in a certain way of thinking, and it's, it's historically sort of put on us, even through schooling, our parents, our social environment, etc. That must have a fundamental impact on how we even perceive the future to be, right? Yeah, and, and, and it, um, it's really problematic. So what I do with my clients, and this will vary from you know national governments to large corporations to NGOs, mm. is I try to take them out of that frame of reference. So we all tend to look at things you know from our own uh, set of prejudices or our own business model, and we tend to think you know about things in that way, which is not surprising. But actually, unless you're looking up and seeing the big picture, you know about say the environment or inequality or all those other things, then um, what you'll do will be um, irrelevant at best and dangerous at worst. Right. And so what I try and do is get my clients to ask themselves the questions they don't know they should be asking themselves. And actually that's where all the commercial opportunities are, to be honest. Uh, if you're asking yourself the questions that your competitors don't even know are questions, then you're going to succeed where they don't even know there's a, a market to be made. So I try to get them thinking about the questions they don't know are there and finding those and owning them and then doing inventive and interesting things with them in the course of making the future not rubbish. So, so if, if we sort of boil that down to your secret sauce, when, when you were to sit down, for instance, with large uh, international tier one banks, what, what are the sort of things that you would maybe get them to start to think about? I mean, where are they heading? Where are we heading? Where is society heading as far as the banks are concerned? Well, it's a, I mean, every bank is different. So the one thing I wouldn't say, you know, you, you can't talk about banks as a thing, mm. because, for instance, on the one hand, you know, I've been working with a very exclusive private bank, you know, and they're a totally different kettle of fish to say, you know, a big, to say, say tier one international bank. Mm. Um, so first of all, I think we'll have to realize that all the clients are different and some of them are enlightened and get it and some of them aren't. I yeah. think what they're all realizing at the moment, as you hinted at an introduction, is that our economic system does not account for the damage we do. Uh, which is really stupid. In fact, um, the guy who invented GDP, whose name now escapes me, he said, um, whatever you do, don't use it. <laughs> don't use it for guiding your economy. 
He says it's a useful measure, and I think it was invented sort of after the Second World War because the Americans wanted to kind of know, you know, what's going on, how much value is there out there. And he said, so he came up with this value, which is essentially the value of things that are being traded. And he said, uh, you know, it's a useful measure, but it's not useful for running a country. It's it's it's, it's an interesting statistic. Yeah. It will tell you the value of the wood you sold, but it will not tell you the value of the forest you lost. Yeah. And at the moment, we're counting all the, th- the value of the things we're trading, and we're not counting the value of all the things we're destroying. So it's an absolutely cockeyed accounting system. Yeah. And banks in particular sort of pride themselves on being, you know, good with figures and good with numbers, but they're not looking at half of them, you know, which is ridiculous. Uh, you know, any alien looking at the planet from outside would go, why are these people punching a hole in their own spaceship? Mm. That makes no sense. That spaceship's going to crash quite soon. Yeah. They're, they're idiots. They must be able to see it. But you get people with these very perverse incentives, like, you know, quarterly profits, well, actually, it's not profitable because if you're destroying the planet that, you know, and you were measuring that in, I think there was an analysis a few years ago. That if you want to look to the biggest extractive and financial industries, if you actually accounted, accounted for the damage they were doing, none of them were profitable in any, in any shape or form. And often we find that the cleaning up, say, of the damage done to the environment costs more than the value of everything that was traded, you know, from, from the, the business in the first place. So the banks are beginning to realize this, like everybody else. Uh, recently. I mean, we're all a bit late to the game, which is good. But for instance, one of the things that banks are doing at the moment, I know a number of them, is they're now starting to do carbon risk assessments of all their clients, all their big clients, and going, how exposed are these people to climate risk? And the more exposed they are, the higher the cost of capital to them. So it's going to cost you more to borrow from us if you're not going to take climate and sustainability and all these other things seriously. Um, I, I think they... Um, like you said, hinted at the beginning, you know, that they're motivated to make money, but the way they make money is, isn't real. And that's the big question you've got to say, well, if that's not real, what does that mean? Now, the banks that get that, so the whole world is going to be moving in this direction because it's going to have to quite quickly. And the banks that get on top of that and start thinking differently and start leading as ethical, environmentally focused banks, they're going to clean up in the next 30 years. Um, and there's the reason for that is the legislation will force them, to, will, will force the banking industry where it has to go. So, for instance, you know, in the UK, we've got a legally binding net zero target for the nation for 2050. Um, and the, the courts have already demonstrated that they will take our government, you know, to the cleaners if they, it starts to do things that are not compatible with that. Most famously, the planned um, extension to Heathrow Airport was kiboshed by the Supreme Court. They said, you can't do it. It's illegal. It's incompatible with your stated legally binding climate agreement. So given that, how long do you think it's going to be before governments of any colour, left, right or centrist, how long do you think it's going to be before they're starting to pass legislation that says you as an individual organisation or bank or whatever are going to be responsible for cleaning up your own um, emissions? It's going to be five, five or ten years. Absolutely, and I think you know the UN Sustainable Development Goals are, are helping to push in that direction. And the more that both uh, public and private entities get behind that, and like you said, the legis- legislations come along to to force the banks into that direction. I still think the banks have got two dimensions, right? It is the dimension from themselves as a bank and operating in a uh, sustainable way but it's also focusing in on their customers because banks can also look at, you know, deciding, like you said, should they invest in organizations that themselves are not sustainable? 
And I, I'm wondering, Villa, you know, sitting in, in a large bank, are you seeing the bank starting to take efforts in saying we will not have customers or work with third parties that are in themselves not following the same ethics around sustainability as we are as a bank? Short answer, of course, is that yes. Uh, so we are seeing uh, different kinds of KPIs that are being set for the for the qualification of, uh, of partners, third parties uh, that are also linked to environmental values. Mm. Uh, basically, you need to have an ethical approach uh, to these topics, and uh, or that you have to have an approach in general uh, to do that. But I think what Mark said there was there was actually a very relevant, which is that no, there, you cannot put all the banks in the same same buckets. Uh, so for example, if you talk about the kind of greed and money-driven decisions, uh, ignoring the, the uh, uh, environment, for, for example, of course, if you're in, uh, if you're kind of a hedge fund manager in some Wall Street, <laughs> Wall Street bank, then that, those things might be on top of your mind, not the environmental goals. But I think, uh, a lot of the kind of Nordic banks, for example, are, are quite good uh, in comparison with these with these things. Now, one thing that actually occurred to me, I'm working in a bank and observing all sorts of behavior that I want to ask you, Mark, is that uh, the kind of presence of uh, greenwashing uh, in, in all of these kind of things. So basically you go out and make a big uh, show about how you're environmentally friendly, but it's only all just window dressing in, in many cases. So how do you actually qualify what is greenwashing and what is not? What is, what is a real effort? Uh, towards making uh, this a better planet uh, compared to just the uh, show uh, of that. It's really obvious. Just look at the figures, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which how figures? Much, yeah, well, I, I know how much of your uh, of your you know revenue is 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 you know coming from doing ethical stuff, and how much isn't. It's really simple. It's it's. I find it hilarious. You you know. You, in fact, my good friend Ed Gillespie, who I do a podcast with, we met um, and bonded over us. Um, totally taking apart somebody from Barclays who had just done a presentation about you know this wonderful job scheme for for people from underprivileged backgrounds and how they you know, they trained them up and got them jobs in Barclays and whatever. And then Ed and I sat there and went, well, that's that's great what you're doing. What about the three billion pounds last year of financing for shale, oil, and gas and all that kind of stuff and the the destruction of the planet? He said, well, that's not my problem. I'm doing a good thing. I'm saying you're what, you, what do you mean you're doing a good thing? You're getting people to come and work for a bank. To this destroying the planet how is that useful and so you know it's very easy to spot that stuff and what you need as a bank actually and as a business is the right shareholders so you can have very enlightened people at the bank you can have very enlightened people at the top of the bank you can have very enlightened people at the top of organizations and i've seen this but if the shareholders come along and say i just want the quickest bang for my book then that all all that good work can be undone quite quickly uh, the irony of that is, of course, is that there's lots of research that backs this up, is that organizations that take sustainability and equality and all that good stuff seriously, they outperform the market, both in terms of accounting performance and stock market performance in the long run anyway. And they outperform their competitors in the long run. They take a bit of a hit at the beginning. And why? Well, because it's really simple, because they manage risk better. If you're looking outwards and you're looking at the big picture of what's actually going on in the world, you're probably going to manage the risk within your business a lot better. And you have much more loyal staff because they're happy to work at a place they feel is actually in touch with the world rather than destroying it. And that's interesting because 85% of employees don't like their jobs. Mm. You think about that. I mean, you know, th these are the businesses we're funding. You know, we're funding people to build businesses where 85% of people hate the work they do. 
you know, that's think of the loss of productivity there. Think of the loss of profits of that. Think of the mental health burden and, and think of the just ridiculousness of creating a system where 85% of people feel disenfranchised. And then one of the reasons I think they feel disenfranchised and they don't want to be there is because they feel they're now complicit in a system that's destroying their own future. So their salary is a bribery, not reward. Yeah. It's just a ridiculous and stupid way to run any kind of uh, system. And yet you can get some people who can be bribed if you pay them enough, but they're still miserable fuckers. <laughs> and it's and it's it's short lived as well, right? Because it doesn't yeah. matter how much you get rewarded through money, you very soon get to a point where you want more or need more or believe that you should have more. It's not yeah. sustainable in itself as a rewarding system. No, not at all. No. So there are some really forward thinking banks out there, I think. Um, uh, I'm working with this private bank called called Weatherby's private bank, which is a very exclusive kind of private bank in the UK. And um, you know, the CEO, Roger, is absolutely, totally committed to working out how he can use the bank for good and his very high net worth customer base. And, and we run a series of events for him called Creating the Future, uh, where we, you know, we talk about the environment and we get them to think about stuff and we raise money for think, people like Client Earth, the environmental law firm and all that kind of stuff. And there's been a real shift there in and the customer base has shifted a lot, you know. Um, so, you know, that on, you've got that on the one hand and then you've got well, I won't, won't name names, but you've got, you know, Goldman Sachs on the, <laughs> you know, kind of yeah. talking about it. But it's kind of madness, isn't it? You know, it's all our own planet. Yeah. Kind of. But for some, it seems that it's like, well, we're all fucked. So let's get to the sweet trolley. Mm. That's how some of them are viewing it. And that's not sustainable. But th those people will, will, will get destroyed by the market in the end because the legislation will force you into it. So you might as well get ahead of this stuff. And you might as well get your customer base ahead of this stuff. And you might as well go and find yourself the shareholders who believe in this stuff. Because then you'll be really well positioned to profit in the new world. But the new world is going to have to necessarily take account of our environment and social justice. Because if it doesn't, there won't be a world to take account of. It's not rocket science. It's, it's, it's cold, hard business sense. Yeah. I, I suppose there's another dimension to this as well. It's not just the environment. There's also the huge um, demographic of unbanked individuals in the world, you know. Mm. I think that's got a lot to do with sustainability as well. The, the future of making sure that we can have inclusion for everybody uh, globally to, to be part of a monetary system that will support them uh, to also be, I suppose, to a certain degree, more uh, ethical in, in, in looking after our, our planet in the long term. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. But then yeah, they need to be brought into a system that isn't complicit in destroying it you know <laughs> destroying yeah. the planet so the banking system itself has to be surely not just sustainable it has to be regenerative i mean what i'm doing with a lot of my clients now is getting them to think about regenerative ways of doing business yeah so that actually by, by doing business they're putting stuff you know putting carbon back into the soil and into the earth and they're regenerating the places where they operate um i can't mention who it is because a lot of my clients i'm under crushing non-disclosure agreements mm. and i think a lot of them are you know in a way because i don't look like them they're they feel slightly embarrassed that I'm in the boardroom with them. They're like, we can't let people know he's in here. <laughs> so they put me under these crushing non-disclosure agreements so that they don't feel too embarrassed. Um, and then I really mess with their heads. But you know, one of them is a huge, huge mining company, absolutely enormous mining, multinational, multi-billion pound mining company. And um, they've pretty much, you know, and it's not just me there, there's the whole team of amazing people. Um, we've kind of got them to reject traditional economics and they're going to embrace circular economy. And they're going to, they're going to commit to 
um, undoing all the damage they've done environmentally for 150 years. That's, and that's all, you great. know, so so when bank when sorry when mining companies start doing that, you know, nobody else has got any excuse. I, I've been working with the Ministry of Defence on their decarbonisation strategy as well. You know, and the Ministry of Defence have committed to net zero by 2050. Um, and they've, there's, a, there's a credible plan for how they're going to do that. Um, if they're going to do it, nobody else has got any bloody excuse. You don't have aircraft carriers. <laughs> you know, I, I don't care how hard you think it is to decarbonize. You try doing it if you're, you know, the UK military. Mm. So if these guys, if, 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 if big mining companies and, uh, and military forces are getting on top of this stuff, then if you don't, it's absolutely faintly embarrassing. You look like you know, like a, a D-grade student. It's the biggest issue of our times. If you're not on top of it, you have no right to be in business. You know, and I've been saying this to insurance companies as well. You know, I say to insurance companies, are you carbon neutral? And if they go, no, I go, well, you're not an insurance company then, are you? It's totally, it's can't, you, you know, you're not even doing your own insurance. Yeah. So, so now so we kind of queued up a couple of key words there. Uh, greed, yeah. uh, mining, and I would say then maybe we add gambling to yeah. that stack and then move on to the topic of cryptocurrencies. Okay. So uh, we, we've kind of seen this kind of, I would say, I think greed is the kind of word that I, is the kind of defines the, the cryptocurrency space best right now, because everybody's just waiting for the prices to go up and up and up, no matter what the cost. Mm -hmm. uh, so Mark, what's your view on, on this whole debate about uh, the, the CO2 emissions of blockchains and, and all, all of those things compared to the, uh, the monetary system that it's supposedly giving us well this is a very um a big question um so um and we've we're talking about this in the week that um el salvador the president of el salvador has said that he wants to accept oh what's going on sorry about that there we go. It's my little sting there when I'm going to say something important. Uh, no, so we, we're talking about this in the week that El Salvador says it's going to wants to accept Bitcoin as legal tender. So there's a number of things to say. You're right. At the moment, um, cryptocurrencies are kind of pointless because nobody's spending them. And so it's not a currency if you don't spend it, right? So it's this very bizarre digital asset that's kind of funded by sentiment. Um, and, you know, if... Amazon turned around tomorrow and said, we're going to accept Bitcoin. That would probably change things because people would be able to spend it somewhere properly. Um, but if they did that, the Federal Reserve would say, no, you're not. And they would stop Bitcoin from doing, sorry, so stop Amazon from doing that. So I think it's, and I think it's very unlikely that um, El Salvador will, will be able to, or they'll have a lot of trouble, you know, accepting Bitcoin as legal tender because, you know, everybody's just going like, well, it's not, it's not real. And um, I think it's a very interesting idea, cryptocurrencies. I think that the, the debate they brought up and what I think we will see will be cryptocurrency versions of things like the dollar and you know, sterling and the euro. I think that will come about because there's sorts, all sorts of benefits from a cryptocurrency where you can you know, instantly you know, reduce the cost of administration, say, of VAT. You know, rather than having this very complicated thing, the VAT can just go to where it goes immediately and you know, you've saved you know, we've removed a huge amount of friction from from um, from the financial system, and therefore, you know, a huge amount of cost, which is good. Um, that's not good for the people who who pay to create that friction at the moment. <laughs> so, I, I think we'll probably see that in terms of the 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 um, 
the environmental footprint, it's bad. But, you know, as we move increasingly towards um, renewable energy, that, that problem kind of goes away. It's only bad at the moment because so much of the electricity is powered by fossil fuels. Um, you know, 30 years from now, that won't be an issue. But right now it's bad. I think Bitcoin's environmental footprint is the same as Denmark, I think, or something like that. So um, my view is that they are they have they have created a new way of us to think about how we do transactions i don't at the moment see a lot a long-term future for bitcoin or dogecoin or ethereum other than as these rather ridiculous speculative assets that some people get very rich at and some people will lose their shirt on and um, but i think we will see you know a crypto yen and a crypto dollar and that kind of stuff so that's where i think it's going and i think that's probably a good thing in the long term because you know as i say it removes a whole lot of friction from the from the world economy there was actually an interesting article I read a little while ago. I'll see if, if I can find that and link it in the description to this episode that talked exactly around what you were just saying, Mark, uh, that it's not the mining itself, which is the, the bad thing. It's the way the electricity is produced, which is the bad thing. And theoretically, if you turn it on its head, the, the, the use of the electricity uh, by the mining rigs is actually putting, you know, money back into circulation because they're having to pay for the use of the electricity mm. so so there is a sort of chicken and egg good and bad side to to the whole bitcoin discussion there's but, also uh, a way to use um i can't say too much because i'm again under an agreement but there is also a way to use um big data centers to draw down carbon from the atmosphere yes so if you have enough um heat and air in a certain configuration, which you tend to get in, in the data centers, you can use it to actually draw down a huge amount of carbon. So you could actually end up creating mining operations that are mining the sky and putting carbon back into the, the ground. Um, yeah, I, I mean, more about that in, in, in about a year. Yeah. Now, I, as, as, as you know, and, and we generally don't like to, to uh, mention our companies, Villa and I, on these podcasts, but I, I work for IBM. And one of the things that IBM is, committing to is to have carbon neutral data centers mm. um, with a fairly hefty sort of uh, timeline on it. And we're doing an awful lot of research in IBM research around uh, how do you decrease the, the carbon footprint of what we're calling responsible computing, right? Mm. So, mm. yeah. So mm. I, I, wonder, I wonder, Mark, if, if we sort of say we're heading towards a brick wall, um, we've talked a lot around what we should be doing. If, if we were to look back into our, our uh, glass ball, I mean, what would you say to, to the banks and the fintechs when they ask, but what's the, the worst that can happen? What, what, what if we do nothing? What if we just continue on the path we are? What, what tends to be your answer? Because, I mean, I'm, there well, must be something here to, to uh, convince them. If we carry on the path we are, then it's the end of civilization. It's probably the reduction of the human race by six and a half billion people. It'll be a very, very difficult life for the half a billion or billion that remain. Yeah. And it will have totally fucked our beautiful home. Mm. You know, it's the end of all the hopes and aspirations of your children and your grandchildren. Um, everything you dreamed of that's good in life, you know, is largely going to evaporate um, and there'll probably be a point of no return. So, um, yeah, why would you want to do that? Yeah. 
<laughs> Absolutely. But do you think we're talking in in years, centuries, millennia? I mean, uh, certainly in, uh, probably by the end of the century. I mean, what yeah. we have discovered, um, which is upsetting, is that the climate system is far more sensitive to change than we had hoped. Mm. And it responds far quicker and reaches tipping points and accelerates things far quicker than we would have liked so if you look at a lot of the scenarios from a few years ago say well it's going to in this it's between this range and this range it always you know quite often we find oh god it's right at the top end of the range is in the worst case place you know so you get these feedback loops very quickly you know you get rid of the arctic ice you reduce the albedo of the planet etc if the west antarctic ice sheet goes you know that's i don't know what that is it's something like six or twelve meters of sea level rise right there you know I mean, there's already quite a lot of sea level rise baked into the system anyway that we're going to have to deal with because the oceans are too hot. And, and, you know, even if we stopped emitting tomorrow, we're still going to have to deal with climate change. So, um, you know, it's thermodynamics. You don't have to be, you know, a genius just to look at the just there's too much heat in the system. And everybody knows what happens if you have too much heat in the system. It's got to do something. And it's not, it's not pleasant. It's already there. It's not like we haven't known about this for a long, long time. What is happening, I think, because of COVID is people are finally getting their head around it. I was very worried when COVID hit that um, the environmental agenda would disappear because people would just be like getting on with the day to day of getting through this pandemic. And what has happened, I think, is the opposite in that people have realized that the pandemic really is kind of a symptom of our broken relationship with the natural world. And they see that as kind of like a a really big warning sign and therefore actually you've seen particularly from the investors and particularly from some banks an absolute doubling down on the climate issue because they've gone right this is real you know we've seen what a pandemic need to us and we realize this is just the beginning yeah. i mean if you carry on in a war with nature that we are at the moment and we're winning you know this won't be the last pandemic in our lifetimes because the more you encroach on the natural environment and the more you heat things up the more likely zoonotic viruses are going to cross over and we're already watching a potential another 40 of them that could cross over and some of them could be far worse than what we've had so we've had a massive wake-up call and i think people are realizing that you know you can't solve say that crisis the biodiversity crisis without solving the climate crisis without solving the inequality crisis without solving the governance crisis jim muir's was it jim muir or john muir's a great environmentalist said um, the problem with the universe is when you pick at anything you find it's hitched to everything else and for too often we've sat there and tried to you know, plow our own little furrows. And what COVID has done is given everybody a, a lesson, a very a quick and brutal lesson in, I guess, my specialism, which is systems change and interconnectedness and interdependence. Mm. And so, and also it's changed the way I think a lot of us feel and think people are going back into work and going, you know what, do I really want to be doing this? You know, it's, do I feel the same? Do I want to get back to what it was? Some of it I want back, yeah, but not all of it. I've definitely my soul has changed, and I'm seeing that with CEOs. Some of the work I've been doing would never. Some of the ambitions that have come out of my my clients, you would never have seen before COVID, and the same actually in the political sphere. You know, the ambitions we've now got coming out on climate from you know the UK in particular is like, yeah, I don't think you would have seen that before COVID, mm-hmm. and I and I've been working as I say with military forces on something we're going to call the peace climate and security alliance which is a kind of agreement between the world's militaries to kind of keep climate as the biggest security national security threat you know in the minds of their governments and collaborate on peace initiatives and decarbonize themselves 
know, that's something that would have been impossible to get off the ground before COVID. And now they're all going, yeah, where do we sign? Hmm. So, uh, you know, we do have this decisive decade, as they call it, to turn things around. And the financial industry absolutely has to get on board with that, because if it doesn't, we're all toast. And last time I checked, the financial industry was made up of people, not computers. You're absolutely right. It is made up of people. It's run to a certain degree on computers, but it's run by people for people. Hmm. And um, you're absolutely right. It is. I guess the uh, the people in DeFi space actually might disagree. They think it's run by computers. Hmm. But uh, uh, so, Mark, I mean, what, you're, what I'm hearing is that you, you see change driven by COVID and the, hmm. and the pandemic situation. But do you think that this really a lasting change or are we just going to go back to the way things were as soon as we're out of this? Um, wait i don't know i mean i i think my feeling is it is a lasting change somebody i was asked at the beginning of the pandemic so do you think this will change us and i said it depends how long it goes on i said if it goes on for you know suddenly a miraculously we get a vaccine in a month nothing will change if it goes on for six months not will change i said if it goes on for a year or 18 months then it will change people because it will change the way we... everybody knows somebody who's lost somebody Everybody in the world has seen the inequalities of the world writ large. They've seen how the people that we really rely on, the key workers, the people who bring us our food and, you know, attend the hospitals are the worst paid and the hardest work. They've seen it and they felt it. And what I say about any change is if you want to get people to change, you have to change the way they feel, not the way they think, because the brain does the PR of what the heart has already decided. And our hearts and souls have changed. Not everybody's, not probably as much as I might like, but they certainly have. One of my clients, you know, big multinational hospitality company, um, you know, their entire business shut down overnight. And rather than sort of panic and retreat into themselves, they said, well, let's use this moment to really rethink what we're going to do. And they're about to announce they're going to become the first regenerative hospitality business in their, in their sector. As a, and they said, you know, we're limping a bit financially, but strategically we feel like Olympic athletes because yeah. we've finally woken up to our purpose in the world, which is to make it better. And that's not an idle, you know, chat. They're restructuring the entire business, as is this mining company. Uh, there's a bank that I can't mention that's turning itself into a B Corp. Now, those are things that just, that, that's not trivial stuff. You've seen the, you know, I mean, I hate the idea of ESG investments. All investments should be ethical and sustainable, <laughs> well-governed. But you know, you've seen this huge, you know, rush towards that kind of stuff. This is not, you're seeing investment houses turning up to the G7 and going, please give us a carbon tax so that we can all invest on a level playing field. You know, this is not trivial stuff. It's very late to the game. That's our big problem is that we're, it's going to cost us far more to fix this now than if we'd started on this seriously 20 years ago. But as Leonard Bernstein said, you know, to achieve great things, you need two things, uh, a plan and not quite enough time. <laughs> and we have a plan, uh, which is, uh, 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 which you mentioned Pal, at, the, at the beginning, which is the sustainable development goals. That's mm. kind of a half decent plan for humanity to get us out of this mess and meeting those. And we certainly don't have enough time. So I am cautiously optimistic that we might just pull it out of the bag. But in order to do that, we're also going to need to build a massive carbon drawdown industry, which will have to be two to three times bigger than the current oil and gas industry to remove the carbon that's already up there. And that's something else I'm working on as well. So if I were an investor, um, that's where I'd be putting my money. Well, that's where I'm putting some of my money and indeed some of my time at the moment because that we're going to have to pull that carbon back and put it back into the soil and back into the earth. So what I'm hearing you say really is to a certain degree, the pandemic has been 
a positive thing because it has empowered individuals to want to systemically change uh, the world rather than relying on organizations and corporations to do it with a sort of half-hearted effort. This has now become upfront, close and personal. Yeah, it's changed the way we feel. And, and what it's allowed is different conversations to happen uh, in, uh, in the corridors of power whether that's, you know, at the top of a business. No, now employees can come in and go, well, I'm concerned about this. And they're told not to shut up about that. Say, yes, so are we, so am I, you know, let, what can we do with this? How do we change the business? Um, also, I think we've all had to learn to trust each other. I mean, the idea, you know, particularly financial services, you often have this ridiculous culture of presenteeism that you had to be seen to be in the office, you know, and that, that's all disappeared and the banks haven't fallen over. In fact, some of them have, you know, done better. So um, I think we've all realized that the old rules have gone and that's a great relief. And I, you know, I've been working with CEOs who are the most excited they've ever been because finally they can do more good in the world rather than just make money. But I, I, one of the things that I would advise any business to do though is as quickly as possible restructure your shareholders to go and get the shareholders you need for the future rather than satisfying the ones you've got. Because if you've got some crappy ones who just want you to make money, then you probably need to get rid of them and go and find some ones that understand the big picture in fact that's what paul polman did at unilever hmm. so he restructured the, the shareholder base to go and get enlightened shareholders so that when Kraft turned up with a takeover bid and the shareholders turned around and said no because you don't believe in sustainability so what, what i'm hearing then maybe mark is is all of these uh, fintech startups entrepreneurs that are out there if they can find a way of aligning their business ideas and uh, future strategy very much around also demonstrating how they're going to be uh, sustainable, good for the environment. That would actually pivot them on a much faster trajectory going forwards than yeah. the ones that are maybe just focused on this is how we're going to generate shareholder value. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. very soon shareholder value will be tied to that stuff anyway. One of the ideas I've been discussing with the Cutler government is, um, and you know, has broad acceptance as a concept you know across the political spectrum as well you know left and right is the idea of restructuring corporation tax so that all organizations that can be proven to be more sustainable more ethical or whatever will get a lower corporation tax rate than those that don't yeah. and that's great because that you know that's it, it satisfies the left because there's you know it's a good move for the environment but it satisfies the right because you're promoting entrepreneurship you're saying i will reward you for for being entrepreneurial in this way so you I, I you know it won't be long before that kind of stuff is happening we've already seen this week you know the the agreement on tax the g7 um for tech firms covid has given governments their teeth back in terms of legislating this stuff now and they all know they've got to do this climate stuff and they all know that they, they've now demonstrated that they can do bold and amazing things if needs be. And a vaccine can be created out of nowhere in, in a half the time or a third of the time it would be normally. And you can do these things. And, and that's what we're going to do. And if you're not on board with that, you're, you know, my friend De Gabriel Walker, Dr. Gabriel Walker says this rather great thing. She says, you know, if you're not on board with this kind of agenda, you don't, you won't get a seat at the table in the mm -hmm. future. And, and she says, if you don't have a seat at the table, then you're going to be on the menu. Yeah, that's, that's, that's actually very true. Yes, yeah. scary, but true. Yeah. But guys, we, I mean, time flies when you're having 
these sort of discussions. And we're starting to sort of come to the top of the hour here. Vila, do you have one last question before we move on to, to the next part? Yeah, I think, I mean, we heard a lot of kind of cautiously optimistic things mentioned uh, in this conversation already, but uh, just kind of uh, leave us on a higher note instead of a doomsday uh, kind of a feeling. What are the kind of top kind of positive things that you're seeing right now? We talked about uh, this kind of situation, COVID situation driving a lot of the sustainable agenda. We heard about uh, data centers being able to uh, absorb CO2 instead of em emitting it uh, and all, all sorts of advances in mining uh, and many things. But what what, else, what is the kind of top most positive things uh, that we can kind of look at and hope to see them grow uh, in the near future so that we can feel a little bit better? Um, well, I, and I'm not necessarily optimistic about the future. I, I believe it's possible we, we can save it. I'm not saying we will. So there's, you know, I would hate to come across as some kind of Pollyanna. I think we're in a very sticky situation. But the positive things, there are a lot, there are lots of things to build on. And I think that's, you know, you have to concentrate on the positive. Otherwise, you, you just wouldn't get up in the morning, <laughs> certainly in the work I do. So for instance, like wind power doubled its capacity, installed capacity last year, doubled. It only has to do that a few more times, and it looks like it's going to. You know, the the you know you're looking at the end of fossil fuels more, quicker than we probably imagined. So that's really good. Um, this military climate alliance that I'm working on, the idea of the world's militaries saying to their governments, the biggest threat in the world is not each other; it's climate change. That's our biggest national security threat, and we have to collaborate. You know, that's a hugely positive signal that our enemies are not each other. It's this big thing we've created together. And we're going to have to solve it together. Um, uh, I am increasingly encouraged by the enlightened investors I'm seeing. There aren't enough of them. Mm. Um, but what was it that Max Planck said? Physics advances one funeral at a time. You know, we may have to have a few funerals in some of the bigger firms before we get a more enlightened investment strategy from, from them. But you're starting to see that it's just too slow. So I think it's that we're all moving, we're kind of moving in the right direction but we're dragging our feet a bit. Um, my job is to get people to hurry the fuck up <laughs> and have fun while they're doing it and have fun while they're doing it. You know, I mean, my, my great friend, Ed, who I mentioned earlier, who I did this podcast with, he says, if you want to subvert the status quo, you better make sure you're having more fun than they are and let them know you're having more fun while you're doing it. And I believe that, you know, the certain the places that I work that are suddenly going, we're going to change and we're going to do things differently. And we're going to embrace a, 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 an ethical and agenda on stuff and we're going to be really double down on this equality and diversity stuff and we're going to think about climate and well you know those are nicer places to work mm. those people have more fun yeah. it's difficult to do to change these big companies around but they're having a they're having more fun than their competitors you know even if you for instance go to exxon mobile then you walk around the corner and go to bp and BP have a long way to go, but they've started, they're kind of getting there in a way. Um, and, you know, they're going to need a lot of help. And, you know, <laughs> but the people at BP are kind of like, they're kind of going, yeah, we can do this. This, this. this sounds like an exciting thing to do. Wouldn't it be amazing to take BP and turn it into completely renewables, you know, carbon neutral energy company? You know, that's a huge challenge. And, and there are people in there who think relish that challenge, you know, and they're having more fun than the people at ExxonMobil who are just going, well, everybody hates us. <laughs> So even in somewhere like the fossil fuel industry, you can see the difference. So, so I, am heart, I am heartened by the appetite we now have to do it. I think that, you know, the fact we're having this conversation on a FinTech podcast is, you know, that wouldn't have been happening five years ago. Yeah. 
so that's the biggest thing i think my biggest hope is that all of us individually realize we've got something to do and that now we can and those conversations are allowable and you can walk into your place of work and go are we taking the environment seriously are we taking diversity seriously are we taking equality seriously and now you won't get kicked out in most places you'll be told yeah we really need to get down on this so one of the equations i use in my work is this equation which i say legitimacy plus capability equals action you have a legitimate concern you have some capability something about it then something happens in the past it was very much the case that people with legitimate concerns about climate or justice or whatever felt they had no capability and certainly they were told to shut up about it when they went to work mm-hmm. now all of us have been told actually you have capability because the place you work is going to start taking this stuff seriously so we'll get a lot more action and pretty soon it's going to be a race to be who's going to be the most ethical the most wonderful the most you know sustainable that's that that's where people are going to want to work that's where the big books are going to be so um it's kind of a win-win we're just we're just we've just done it on we're doing it on a knife's edge we're right down to the wire this is a very decisive 10 years and if we get it right then we can all go out for some sustainable champagne and if we get it wrong it's going to be very very messy i suppose you're right we 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 have got to a point where every individual has become empowered to uh, to make that stance to to try and make a change and and take it up to the corporations and to their bosses and to their leaders and to everybody else and have a voice around it. I mean, every, but as, yeah, sorry. Every country in the world, to one degree or another, is going to be passing legislation to advance the sustainable development goals over the next ten or fifteen years. Yeah. Some of them with more enthusiasm than others. But if I said to you as an investor or or you know or just as a parent, you know, and said if every single government in the world is going to be passing legislation to advance these goals in the next 10 to 15 years, where would you put your money? What career advice would you give your children? What would you do with your career? What training would you go and get yourself? Yeah. You know, it's fairly obvious, you know, where, you, where, where the world is heading. So um, yeah, hopefully we'll get there. Uh, I mean, you know, if we don't kind of, we're dead anyway. We're dead anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, so on a lighter note, and as a, <laughs> as a Monty Python fan, as they would say, now for something completely different. Um, let's hop into same, same, but different and uh, change direction for the last couple of minutes. Mark, I'm a, a, a guitarist and you've got a guitar hanging behind you. And I, uh, I, uh, I got a little rumor that you play in a band that's released, what is it, two albums or one album? Uh, we've released one and we're, yeah. we've just finished writing the second Um uh, way way overdue. Our record company is a little bit annoyed with us, I think, because we're. <laughs> but, you on know, COVID. Uh, yes, but we kind of blamed it on COVID. So yes, so so uh, I um, I play and write in a band called Quantum Pig, which, as you can probably hear from the title, started out as a bit of a joke, um, and it was me and my my friend Ian, who's a fantastic musician, um, just decided as you know men who are of a certain age that we're just going to play the music we like we're not going to try and make music that we think is popular we'll just play willfully complex progressive rock and um with a with a kind of a poppy edge and um it turned out to be much better than we thought it was going to be and then by accident we got a record deal um and yeah we're, we're we'll be releasing our second album uh early next year i think and where can, can people uh, find this on on yeah Spotify? you can find it it's on it's on all the you know the normal the normal platform. So Quantum Pig, our first album was called Songs of Industry and Sunshine. It was very much lyrically, as you would expect from me, about all the things we've been talking about, the transition from the old world to the new. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very, very well reviewed. We didn't get a single bad review, which was nice. We got some national press, you know, we did videos and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, the world of prog is a very, very small world, actually. 
it, it, but it's significant. I, I like to say that prog rock, I, I imagine, is a bit like being gay in the 60s. There's a lot of people doing it, but but it's a closed scene and, and you may not admit that you're in it. Um, uh, you know, so I think, but I think prog rock is, you know, is going to come out quite soon. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to be proud, proud again and say, look, we do like this willfully complex music made by mostly old white guys who can't dance, but it's okay. That's our thing. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I have to admit, I'm jealous. I mean, I, I grew up in my teenage years thinking I was going to become the next uh, famous rock guitarist. And I had the long hair just like you, but now I've ended up with short hair, a long gray beard, and uh, my guitars just hang on the wall and I take them down to play for my children periodically. So uh, you've managed to, to get to where I believed I would get. But, you know, our futures are never set in stone. Well, I mean, there's a serious point here, which is I do have this side career in, in the arts as a... Mm musician and in comedy as well and as a playwright and I write the occasional book um, as was mentioned and this that's because the skills that you have to learn to front a band or do a stand-up gig or write some comedy are all about manipulating the emotions that's what we go to the artists for we want, we want them to make us feel stuff and actually I use those skills far more in the boardroom than my technical skills. It's like, what's the joke that's going to get this guy to to understand this point? What's the feeling? What's the emotion? Because once you've got them feeling differently, then they will do differently. Yeah. And uh, that's one of the big the big things that I think has shifted at the moment with COVID. To, to, to go back to our conversation, is I think we we all feel a bit different now, mm. and that that means change is possible. And it's possible in a way that will never be possible again in our careers. So this is the moment to really, you know, go for it. I think I say, if you're not going to be bold now, when, you know, now is the moment in history, in your career, where there's a chink in the, the, the status quo and we can run in and tear it apart and make something new and exciting. And if you, and if you, if you back away from that opportunity, you will regret it. And there's a rule I live by, which is um, fear is hard, but regret is a fucker. So don't regret it, but run at it with, with all your heart and build a world that's worth, you know, giving to your children. And, with and play that, guitar while you're doing it. And play guitar whilst you're doing it. Yeah. And with that fantastic high note, um, we've come to an end of another episode. It's actually coming into the close of season three for us. We will have one more episode after this, just Villa and myself doing a review of some of our highlights from this season three. But Mark, before we close out, uh, for all of our listeners, where can they find you if they want to know more about uh, you, your band, your stand-up comedy and everything else? Where can uh, well, they reach you? I'm, I'm really easy to find. Um, so the, my website is markstevenson.org um, where you can contact me or my various agents. Um, and I'm on Twitter, Optimist on Tour. So I'm, I'm, and I'm generally very easy to, to reach. And I, of course, am for hire. Yes, Absolutely. <laughs> And, and for that, we are so immensely grateful that you wanted to uh, come and spend an hour with Villa and myself today to talk about these important uh, topics and discussions. And we're also grateful for you, dear listeners, for again, coming back and listening to us. Without you, we would have no podcast. We would be shouting into a empty, dark room, and that's not fun for anyone. So we thank you as well for uh, putting up with us for another episode, and we look forward to having you join us in a future episode. But please reach out to us on all the usual channels. We're on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, YouTube. We would appreciate your feedback and comments on our channels. Uh, hit the like button on our YouTube videos. We really want to grow our following on YouTube. And let us know what you would like us to focus on in future episodes. And um, 
Villa and I will be back in two weeks' time, like I said, last season episode, and we look forward to that. So thank you. This has been Fintech Daydreaming. <laughs>